I'd like to transition now to the topic of the final destiny of believers. In a word, you could say heaven. Um, there's a couple of reasons why I chose this topic. I told the first service that the first reason is it just sounded like a good topic to teach on. I don't know. We talk about other stuff. Why don't we, why don't we talk about this one? Um, but second, what's in store for believers is supposed to be a motivator for believers. Uh, Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race which is set before us. And my question is, why? You know, why, why, why do that? Why take the time to do that? And the answer, in a word, is heaven. Now, people might dispute that answer. They don't, they don't like that. Um, but that word encompasses a lot of things. So it's hard to be motivated without a proper understanding. Notice I'm not saying a full understanding, but at least a proper understanding of what heaven is. And uh, I know we've sang in here before. You guys know the hymn, um, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it'll be, right? I don't know how many of you can conjure up a concept of what that's supposed to look like, but I don't know how many people are actually rejoicing over it. You think about it and you're like, what's that going to be like? I have no idea. Am I really that happy about it? That's what we're going to talk about today. So I suspect many folks have either no concept or an incorrect concept of it. And so my goal today, in my usual fashion, is to bombard you with some things that the Bible says about the destiny of believers, and even some things that it doesn't say that we can infer from what is said. Does that sound good? Okay. Before I begin, though, however, I want to let you know that what you're about to see up here, uh, very little of this is going to be original for me. In fact, my buddy Tom Baker, who sent me his material on this, it was so well organized. I said, Tom, can I, can I take your stuff and tweak it and use it? He said, oh yeah, praise God, go for it. So anything good you get out of it, give the credit to him. But I, I suspect everybody will be able to learn at least one new thing about what we're going to talk about here. So let's get into this. I'm going to start off with some assumptions people have about heaven and contra contrast that with what the Bible teaches. Now, according to Randy Alcorn, and this is his book on heaven, if you haven't read it, I recommend reading it. It's a good book. He says that there are things that believers assume about heaven, and then there's what the Bible says. So let's see how he divides these up. The first thing, he says, he is, we assume it's non-earthy, and yet the Bible talks about the new earth. We assume it's otherworldly. It's, it's ethereal. It's heaven's out there, the spirit world. The Bible says it's going to be familiar. Earth is familiar. If it's a new earth, we already know what the old earth looks like. It's going to be familiar. We have this idea of disembodied spirits. This is from Plato. You know, I'm a soul locked in a body. No, that's not the biblical view. It's not the biblical view. We are soul-body unities. The body is not a bad thing. We're not trapped in here. We don't have to get liberated from it. We're going to have resurrected bodies. Folks assume heaven's going to be foreign. The Bible speaks of it as if it's our true home. We think about leaving our favorite things behind, and that makes sense, right? You think about leaving family behind or something like that. But heaven's supposed to be retaining the good and finding the best ahead. Now, that needs to be teased out a little bit, granted, but it's still true. 
We tend to think no time and space, and I don't know where we get that one from. I'm not sure. I think it has maybe something to do with what we think time and space are. But if, if there's a new Jerusalem, if there's a city and it's a new earth, you have both time and space. You can't, you can't avoid those. There's going to be time and space in heaven. I'll explain that later. We think it's going to be static, nothing to do but float around on clouds and strum harps. You guys remember that's in Looney Tunes? It's probably in, probably in other new cartoons now. Everybody's seen that, right? Somebody dies and the little thing has wings and they have a halo and they go up. And Why do we, have, why do, we do that? The Bible makes it seem it's going to be dynamic. Our God to worship, friends to enjoy, people to know. There's thousands upon thousands of angels up there. You know you're going to meet angels one day? Talk to them. They're people too. They're not humans, but they're people. We tend to assume heaven's going to be boring. I used to think this. It's like, isn't it going to be boring? Isn't there nothing to do? Well, it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a fascinating place. We tend to think no art, culture, progress. Randy Alcorn says there's going to be art, all cultures, and progress. We see there every nation, tribe, language, tongue, you know, whatever. That's, that's culture. That's there. We tend to think of it as inhuman or as a loss of desire, right? And I said, that's, that's Buddhism. You're supposed to empty yourself of all desire. Of course, the problem is they desire to empty themselves of all desire. So I don't know how the Buddhist figures that out. But we think of heaven that way, though. But instead, these are fully human individuals. Your personality, your desires continuously fulfilled. Wouldn't be heaven if not. Absence of the terrible, but presence of little we, of what we desire. No. Presence of the wonderful. Everything we desire that's good for us. I'll make that qualification. And nothing we don't. That sounds more biblical. That sounds like the more biblical concept. So let's get into this. Terminology of heaven. We have to make some distinctions here. Well, there's the present heaven called the intermediate heaven. When people die now, intermediate heaven. Okay, that's what exists now. The future heavens, also called the new heavens and the new earth. It's called the new earth. It's called heaven on earth. It's called eternal heaven. Okay. Currently, heaven is the so-called place where God is experienced more directly. You got to remember that God is omnipresent. He's no more present in heaven than he is in this room. He's no less present in hell. To be omnipresent means he is present everywhere. If there was something God was not present to, that thing would not exist. But what it means to be omnipresent or be in heaven is that people are more aware of his presence. Heaven is the control center, if you will, where he manifests his presence so that it can be perceived more. As Solomon said, the heavens, the highest heavens can't contain you. How much less this house I built, right? So we're going to go through these. The location of heaven, the timing of heaven, the occupants of heaven, the duration of heaven, the nature of heaven. If you have lunch plans, call them and tell them you'll be late. Send a text real quick. All right. Location. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. All right. The present, intermediate heaven. Yet where is it? I mean, that's a fair question, right? Jesus ascended in the first chapter of Acts, right? And he went somewhere, a cloud hit him. Is it in this galaxy? In the corner somewhere? Is it in, an, in another dimension? How do we say it? I don't know. But it is a place. 
John 14, Jesus said, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Okay? It's a place of departed spirits. It's a place where God's throne is in Revelation. It's where Jesus went. I'm ascending to my God and your God. My Father, your Father, right? It's a place where other believers are. What did he tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. It's called the third heaven, and Paul affirms that it's paradise as well. Things that he was not permitted to speak. But in the future, you can call that the final heaven. It's not the intermediate heaven. There's a future heaven. Peter says, according to his promise, we're looking forward for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Does that mean this place is going to go and blown out of existence and a new one's going to pop up? Not necessarily. God doesn't need to throw us out of existence and bring us back so we're glorified. He said we'll be changed. He seems to be in the, the business of revamping stuff, if that's the word. Refurbishing? Can we do that? Yeah, he can do that. Heaven on earth. What did Matthew, what does Jesus say in Matthew? Father in heaven, how are the disciples supposed to pray? Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come here. And in Revelation it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Thy kingdom come, and God is coming with the kingdom to dwell among his people. That's the future heaven, or heaven on earth. How about the timing of heaven? When are we talking about? Well, the intermediate heaven exists now. So when believers die now, they go to what you would just call the intermediate heaven. It's not the permanent one. 2 Corinthians 5.8, But we are of good courage, Paul says, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So if you're absent from the body, Paul says you're still here. You're not in the body, but you are now present with the Lord. It's a place that you go. Okay? Revelation 6 I saw underneath the altar, John says, the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God. Okay, so under the altar in heaven there are souls. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How, Lord, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging the earth, or from, refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? There are souls under the altar. They're talking about judgment happening on the earth. It's a separate place. It's an intermediate heaven. That's what exists now. The Bible also teaches that the soul survives death. Quickly here, Abraham breathed his last, was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. When he died, he was gathered to his people. You say, well, that might be just talking about burial, okay? We'll try one more at Jacob at the bottom here in a sec. But Solomon says, the dust returns to the earth from which it came, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Jesus called this place Abraham's bosom, a place of rest. Jacob, who was still in bed when he died, it says, When Jacob finished giving instruction, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. After that, it talks about his children burying him. So being gathered to your people can't mean just going to where they're buried. Can't be it. You're gathered after you die. That's what the Bible teaches. The soul continues to exist after the body dies. Now, that's the intermediate heaven. What about the new heaven? And earth. They are still future. 
after the millennium, and I don't have time to get into the millennium and end time stuff right now, but that's the thousand-year reign of Christ. All believers will enter into the future heaven, called the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation, last two chapters, last two chapters. Um, read those when you have time. It's, it's great. It's great to read that and just see what's coming and what's in store for the end of all things. It's really neat. In a way, it's really the beginning of all things. All right, what about the occupants of, occupants of heaven? I'm trying to go a little quickly here. Well, there's the triune God, good angels, and redeemed humans. I don't have time to answer the animal question if the dogs go to heaven or if Fluffy will be there or whatever. It's, a, it's an important question. It's a good question. I don't think it's funny. I think we do need to answer those questions to the best of our ability, but we can't do that right now. All right, to begin, the triune God. God the Father's on the throne there. God the Son's at his right hand, it says. And God the Holy Spirit is there. David says, where can I flee from your spirit? If I ascend into heaven, what? You're there. There's also good angels. Then I looked and heard the voice of many, voices of many angels around the throne. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a lot. I'm not a math guy, but I just write a lot right there. It's a lot of people. And angels are people. They're not humans. They're people. There's also redeemed humans. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. There's a lot of people there. So that's at least who's there. There may be more. There's certainly no less. All right. Heaven, what about the duration of heaven? Well, heaven, as meaning the dwelling place of God's throne, will be everlasting. So God is eternal, and he will always have a throne. David says, in God's right hand are pleasures forever. And Moses said, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Thus says the High and Holy One, who inhabits eternity, Isaiah says. So God, as long as he exists, heaven will exist. Since he's eternal, heaven is therefore eternal unending. Lord Jesus will have a kingdom forever. We read this at Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, or Father of Eternity, since it's talking about Jesus, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's the duration. We're talking about duration right now. Of the Son, book of Hebrews says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. All right. Here's the big one. This one's going to take us home. The nature of heaven. I want to talk for a moment about the physical resurrection because I think that helps best explain heaven. Since our resurrection will be physical, as Jesus was, heaven will also be a physical place. That's the lens we want to look through is the resurrection of Jesus. What does his resurrection tell us about heaven? In Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. See. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
While they still could not believe because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, you got something to eat? Let me show you. I can chew on this thing, okay? That was evidence. He's a, he has a physical body. He's not just a spirit walking around. Jesus' resurrection body was the same physical body in which he died. Remember Thomas? See my hands? Put your hand on my side. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing, right? It was a physical body. Our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus. What does Paul say? He will make our uh, lowly bodies, transform them to be like his glorious body, he says in Philippians there. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In 1 Thessalonians, it talks about the dead in Christ will rise first. That's a resurrection. And then those who remain will be caught up with him, still in their physical bodies. So whatever the final heaven's going to be, it's going to be physical. Last one, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He's not talking about a church service. He's talking about dying. We won't all sleep. That's physical death. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. That will be cool. That will be unprecedented, something we've never experienced before. So that's the lens we want to look through. On the nature of heaven, in other words, what heaven is, there's a list. And yes, I'm about to go through this list. Heaven consists of perfect bodies. It's a place that's far better than here. There's no sorrow, death, or pain, no sickness. There's no more curse. It's a place of completed salvation, no darkness. There's many mansions there. There's worship. There's everlasting service, abundant life, overflowing joy, grand reunion, a great heavenly wedding, a celestial city, incredible beauty, moral perfection, rest, reward, fuller knowledge, beatific or blessed vision, a permanent state of morality, and a direct knowledge of God. Let's begin at the beginning. A place of perfect bodies. The Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies so they may be conformed to his glorious one. We're going to be like him. So also is the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. The body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be like nothing we've ever experienced. We haven't experienced that yet. We know what it's like to have fallen bodies, fallen minds, right? It's a place far better than here. Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, Okay? We wouldn't miss this place. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You're well pleased if you're with God at this time. Heaven is going to be always with God, so you're always going to have that pleasure. No sorrow, death, or pain, Revelation 21 says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, 
for the former things have passed away. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Luke 20, Jesus answered them, Those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor, given in, nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God. We don't get wings, but like the angels who don't have to worry about physical death, humans won't have to worry about physical death anymore. It'll be a thing of the past, a thing to joke about. Remember when I died? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> No sickness. Isaiah 33 says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he will save us. And no residents will say, I am sick. If this isn't talking specifically about the future heaven, it can at least be inferred that if this is the blessing of the Lord, that will translate over into the new heaven. Revelation 22, in the middle of the street, this is going to talk about the tree of life. It's back. We haven't seen it since the beginning of Genesis, which when it was by the tree of the knowledge, good and evil. But there's a tree with therapeutic leaves for healings of the nations. We don't have to worry about being sick if there's a perpetual healing. There's also no more curse. In the past, creation was cursed because of Adam's sin. In the present, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. But in the future, Paul says, creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption, and there shall be no more curse. God will reverse what happened with the first parents, the first people. It's also a place that salvation will be complete. I know you've heard this before, probably too many times, but salvation comes in three stages. There's justification, that's being saved from the penalty of sin. There's sanctification, being saved from the power of sin. And then the end, glorification, that's saved from the very presence of sin. And that means no more evil, period. Moral evil. I'll have to explain that in a minute. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. In Colossians 3.4, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It's also a place of no darkness. This is an interesting one, Revelation 21. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all by day. There shall be no night there. Now, notice it doesn't say that there is not going to be a sun or a moon. It just says you're not going to have need of it. Now, does that mean the whole earth, or does that mean just the New Jerusalem? I'm not sure. I mean, it certainly does mean the New Jerusalem. Does it mean anywhere else? I don't know. Certainly no spiritual darkness. It's a place of many mansions. What did Jesus say? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. There's a place with mansions, and that's what's coming. It's also a place of worship, Revelation 7. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne 
and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Worship is more than just a church service. Thank goodness, or else none of us would want to go. I have to work. I got to go to church service forever? Sounds bad. <laughs> right? Revelation 5.13, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. You can worship, worship the Lord. I wish I can go off on a tangent right now. I don't have time, but we can worship the Lord in activities that we do at work, right? playing sports, making music, doing art, driving fast cars, whatever. You can. It's a place of everlasting service, Revelation 7 says. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. This is the angel speaking to John. And they, were wa- and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. There's service to be done. Work is a good thing, despite what, what some of us might think. Revelation 22, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Talking about the new Jerusalem there. But yeah, there's everlasting service. There's things to do. Right now, we've been created for good works, which God prepared ahead of time or in advance for us to do, that we may walk in them. There's still stuff to do in heaven. We don't just have to sit there and scratch our heads. It's also a place of abundant life. Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That's why he came, to give life, to make humans live the way they're supposed to live. 1 Timothy 4.8, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and... That which is to come. There's going to be benefit in the life that is to come. Revelation 22, let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's what God offers us. Offers us Abundant life. That's what he offered the woman at the well. He said, the, the water that I will give you will well up into eternal life. And it's free. Jesus offered it for free. It's also a place of overflowing joy. In Psalm 16, David says, You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In John 15, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, talking to the disciples, and your joy may be complete. 1 Timothy 6, Command those who are rich in the present age to give away all their money. It's not what it says. It's okay to have money. It's okay to be rich. But it's just not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. My buddy Tom recently acquired a Tesla, and I hope he's enjoying it. And if it's not, if he gives it to me, I will enjoy it for him. (laughs) We're allowed to enjoy life. It's okay. God gives us these things. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God didn't spare Jesus Christ. And if he didn't spare Jesus, whatever we ask, that's gonna, that will be for 
for our pleasure, his glory in heaven, we can be assured that we'll have that. That's why I said at the beginning, it's for anything we ask for our good. There are things we ask or we pursue that aren't for our good all the time. This is also a place of grand reunion. It says in this, and I'm going to... We've read this already, so I'm not going to go all through it. But what happens when Christ comes with the voice of the archangel, with the shout, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain are caught up with them. We're with these people, right? At the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses were the same Elijah and Moses. They were the same folk, okay? There's a reunion when people get together. It's also a place of the great heavenly wedding. I'm not going to stick on this slide. I'll just say one minor thing about it. I don't get, I'm better now. I don't get terribly excited when I sing about being the bride of Christ. You know what I'm saying? Waiting for my heavenly groom. Like, that doesn't do it for me. However, however, if I have a framework from which to understand what it's talking about, then it's not so bad. I don't have, a, I don't have as much of a, a visceral reaction to it. But it's a heavenly wedding. Um, Paul says, when he's talking about this, he says, I speak in a great mystery. You're supposed to be wedded to Christ. That's the mystery. You're supposed to be faithful to God, like a, like a husband and, and spouse, remain, spouse remain faithful to each other. It's a mystery. It's, like, it's, a, it's a wedding, a heavenly wedding, where we're married to God in that sense. That's a good thing. I want to touch on Grand Reunion once more. In Philippians, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Our citizenship. You are citizens, if you're a believer. You're a denizen of heaven. Okay? In 2 Samuel, talking about being reunited to people, you're going to be reunited with all those citizens that you know. In 2 Samuel, when David lost his child, what did he say? He's gone. I can't bring him back. I will go to him. He won't come back to me, but I will go to him. Okay, that's a reunion. He's going to him. He's not going somewhere else. He's going to him. There's a reunion there. In Genesis 15, God says to Abram, before he's Abraham, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Your ancestors, the people you know, those people. That's a reunion and Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There is a reunion with these people and with all believers. A celestial city. Hebrews 12 says, But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. This is a city like we've never seen. Revelation 21, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and He showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Kind of like Wizard of Oz a little bit, right? Is that the crystal city or... Celestial palace, I can't remember what it's called. Hebrews 11.10, Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God, as the New Living Translation puts it. God is preparing a place and will bring it. 
And if you're a builder, maybe you can appreciate that. It's a place of incredible beauty, Revelation 21 says. The construction of its walls, talking about the New Jerusalem now, was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. That's why it's the pearly gates, we say, right? And the city, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. What does that look like? I don't know. But it sounds sweet. It's also a place of moral perfection. 1 Corinthians 13. But when the perfect comes, then that which is in part will be done away with. Revelation 21. But there shall be by no means enter the new Jerusalem anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. There's not going to be any moral imperfection there. Rather, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That tells you that believers, you can infer from that, that believers won't be able to do those things. There's another reason we'll infer that here in a minute, but you can get that just from that passage. If that stuff can't enter the new Jerusalem, and only those who are in there are written in the Lamb's book, that tells you that those who are written in the Lamb's book can't do those things. They're unable. You're going to say, maybe they're just unwilling. Well... We'll talk about that. Hebrews 12, But you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the spirits of just men and women, made perfect, moral perfection. That's going to feel good to not sin. It's a place of rest, Revelation 14. Then I heard the voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Hebrews 3 talks about those who don't believe aren't able to enter into the rest. Therefore, if you do believe, you're able to enter into the rest. It's also a place of heavenly rewards. I like this one, not that I'm expecting much. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. In the book of Daniel, the angel tells Daniel, Go your way, you're going to enter into your rest. In other words, you're going to die. And then you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. That's his reward. He gets something. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, I've run the race, I've, I've kept the faith, in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also all those who have loved his appearing. There's something to be received when Jesus comes back, if you're looking forward to his appearing. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's fair, right? You capitalists in here. Maybe I shouldn't have made that joke, sorry. For each man's work will become evident for the day, talking about the day of judgment, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. That's pretty cool. I'm about to get to the caveat, though. 
Here's a caveat is that rewards seemingly can be lost. In 2 John, he says, watch yourself so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Now, I don't know how to read that other than the fact that he has no reason to say watch yourselves if you're going to be fully rewarded anyway. In fact, you render most of the scripture, especially a lot of it in Hebrews, completely incoherent without this view. There's no point in warning believers to not do something if they're going to receive the benefits in the end anyway. Does that make sense? I'm not offering an argument for it right now. I'm just saying it seems to be the straightforward reading is you can lose your reward. What about 1 Corinthians 3 again? If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he himself will receive a reward. We just read that, right? Look what it says after that, though. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Seems that you can lose what you built if you're not building carefully. And those are metaphors of building, of course, but it seems like you can lose your reward. Some people say, that's not talking about eternal rewards. All right. I'm not making an argument for it right now. I'm just saying, this is what the scripture says. Paul says six chapters later, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached the others, preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I don't know why he'd say that unless he could be disqualified. <laughs> it just it seems a straightforward reading. Now, Paul's worrying about being disqualified? Okay, well then, I better check myself right? The apostles worrying about messing up? How much more or how much greater do I need to keep an eye on me? Heaven's a place of fuller knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the partial will be set aside. For now we see in a mirror indirectly or dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Does it mean I'll know God completely? I'll touch on that in a minute. This is also a place of the beatific or blessed vision. So mortal man cannot see God. You remember God says to Moses, no man can see my face and live. That's why he says, I'm going to show you my back. I'll tuck you in a rock and my glory will go by you. You can't see my face. Nobody can see my face and live. In John 1.8 it says, no one has seen God at any time. But immortal man can see God. What does Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what it says. And Revelation 22 says, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now there are some consequences to this beatific vision. Here's what I was talking about earlier. Number one, first consequence, sin will be impossible. We've got to get a little bit philosophical just for a sec here. Knowledge of God is knowledge of an infinite good. Once we see, not with our physical eyes, but once we see an infinite good directly, it will be impossible to do evil. Hence, seeing the beatific vision makes, it, makes sin impossible, because sin is evil. This is not a limit of freedom, however. This is actually a fulfillment of freedom. Ultimate freedom, or true freedom, is not the freedom of doing evil, but the freedom from doing evil. Another consequence, this is only given to believers because love for God cannot be forced. Love is a free act, and you can't have a forced free act. If it's forced, it's not free. If it's free, it's not forced. That's a contradiction. Okay? It's only given to believers. God doesn't force himself upon anyone. He won't force anyone into the beatific vision. 
It has to be a willing part. God gives it as a gift for free, but it still has to be received by people. Here's a final consequence. More perfect knowledge of God. Again, in 1 Corinthians it said, For we know in part, we prophesy apart, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be set aside. The issue here, you've got to remember, God is infinite, unlimited. We are finite. We will never have infinite knowledge because a finite being doesn't have an infinite mind. To comprehend God, you would need an infinite mind. And a finite person doesn't have an infinite mind. God's knowledge of God will be quite literally inexhaustible. You will never get to know him too much or anything like that. You'll know him continually, but never too much. It's impossible. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Isn't that cool? All right. Permanent state of perfection. Just as God is changeless perfection, believers in heaven will be changeless in glorified moral nature and state. Doesn't mean changeless, period. Just means in their moral nature. You will be the perfect you. John says, again, we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And how was Jesus? He was walking. He was resurrected. He was talking. He was eating. He was able to do that in a resurrected body. He was perfected, as it were. He didn't have to die anymore, things like that. All right. Direct knowledge of God, then we're going to wrap up. In this life, God is known indirectly through creation and Scripture. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's eternal qualities, His divine power and nature are clearly seen being understood from what's been made. And as Paul said, now we see as in, in a mere dimly. However, in heaven... It's going to be direct knowledge. We shall see him face to face. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. They shall see his face, his name written on their foreheads. Again. So, that concludes the nature of heaven. It's going to be physical. We're going to see God. I wish I had time to talk about the beatific vision. Right now, we know reality. I'll just do a quick aside. We know reality through the concepts we form in our minds. However, in heaven, God himself is going to be the lens through which we see the world, including himself. It's going to be nothing like we've ever seen. And it's going to be awesome. All right, so we talked about the location of heaven, the timing of heaven, the occupants of heaven, the duration of heaven, the nature of heaven. We've talked just a little bit about each of these. Some of them need teased out more, granted, but it's not less than this. Conclusion, heaven exists. If God exists, heaven exists. God wants all people to go there. What does he say in 1 Timothy? He desires all men to be saved. Only the people that trust Christ will be there, though. God is the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe. He is the Savior. Not everybody accepts Him as Savior, though. So He is the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe, who have trusted in Him. Those are the ones who are going to get to be with Him. One of these days, we're going to meet the Master. And we don't want our finest moments to be in judgment, our most honest moments. 
and we don't want to be there and say, I wish I would have done stuff differently. All right? So we got to get ready. Lord bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together where we can learn what your word says about uh, the future and what we can expect. Uh, Lord, thank you that we're not believers in Christ or followers of Jesus just because we made a good decision, but rather we're, we're followers and believers because you're gracious, Lord, and you offer to forgive us for our sins. For we've sinned against a holy and perfect righteous God. And Lord, if you are completely righteous, you must punish sin, even if you don't punish all sinners. But if you are perfectly loving, you're able to give us mercy as well. So thank you for sending Jesus to take away the penalty for our sins and satisfying your justice so that you can release your mercy to us. Please be with all of us as we go from here and help us look forward to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.